I've been privileged to do a fair amount of traveling in my life, but so far the only time I've ever visited the Rocky Mountains was when Grace and I went there on our honeymoon. That was, of course, the, the first trip that she and I had been together on of any extent. Uh, we had maybe ridden home a couple times from college to visit our parents after we were engaged, but we had never traveled together, the two of us, anywhere. So I imagine Grace trusted my driving, but her experience with me was limited. And she had certainly never seen me drive on mountain roads because I had never driven on mountain roads before. I learned very quickly that my new wife did not appreciate it if I looked around while I was driving and pointed out all the amazing vistas while I'm driving on these curvy mountain roads. She, she much preferred that I keep my eyes fixed on, on the road as we're going around rather than look around and, and remark about, look at that beautiful valley over there. Her concern for me to stay focused became most pronounced when we were on one road that I remember we're driving along and we get to the very top of the mountain and they actually had to shave off part of the mountain so there'd be enough room for two little lanes of, of pavement to be put down. Either side of the road was cliff. Now, of course, the mountain top still was not perfectly straight, but we had great cliffs on both sides and she did not appreciate it at all if I pointed at the beautiful peaks off to the side or the trees that were growing over there or the clouds. She really wanted me not to look around and enjoy the views as we drove that narrow stretch. She recognized there was danger there. If we dropped off either side of the road, there was no shoulder at all. It was just cliffs. She also recognized that there's a potential that if I'm focused over here, the car might drift over there. And there wasn't any room for drifting. You know, a lot of ways, the Christian life is like that narrow bit of road. The, the world around us, it presents all kinds of, of tempting displays, things for us to look at, that, that want to draw our attention. But what we fail to recognize is that on both sides of traveling, cliffs. On one side, this of our road, our road you could think of maybe as the road of righteousness, the road that makes us be more like Christ that we're to be pursuing. If you look on one side, you find this cliff, and it's the cliff the, the, the pursuit of righteousness through your own personal effort. On the other side, though, there's an equally dangerous cliff. It's the cliff of antinomianism or, or licentiousness, the idea that, you know, we're forgiven in Christ, so we can do whatever we want. Both of those are deadly cliffs. As we look around at the views the world offers us, we, we can drift right over the edge of these cliffs very quickly. The, the dangers presented by both legalism and antinomianism, they're, they're not new. The, the, the church has faced them since the very beginning. Even before the, the letters were written by the New Testament apostles, the church was facing the cliff of legalism and the cliff of antinomianism. They were there. And they have been ever since, for 2,000 years. The, this morning, we'll see these dangers popping up. Colossians, the letter we've been looking at that Paul wrote, Paul's going to deal with, with these dangers that, that presents themselves when we look at particularly the cliff of legalism. Legalism, the, the pursuit of righteousness through personal effort. 
That's the particular cliff that, that Paul's got to deal with. His focus in this letter to, to the Colossians is Christ. He has celebrated the glorious truth that, that Christ came to deal with the ultimate damage that, that sin brings upon mankind, and that is eternal damnation. Christ offers forgiveness for sin. Christ restores our relationship with, with our holy God. Christ transforms the, the sinner so that the sinner becomes increasingly like Christ. We do that as we pursue that road of righteousness. As we've seen over the, the past few weeks, looking at, at the second chapter of our letter, Paul wrote this letter to address false teachings that, that were in Colossae, things that were there distracting this group of people, distracting this church from the, the work of Christ. We need to always remember Satan is the current ruler of this world. Satan is the one who sets up all the views around us in this world. He, he has been granted by God authority over this world. When sin corrupted this world, God handed the rule of it over to Satan for the time. That's part of God's plan. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it, it's carried forward by, by, by the church of Jesus Christ. But this gospel message that the church is carrying forward, it's an incursion into Satan's world. Satan never yields ground that currently occupies without a fight. He does everything he can to throw up obstacles and distractions in an attempt to halt the gospel's advance. That's what's happening in Colossians. Last week, Paul began a counterattack against Satan's distractions. And the counterattack, you may recall, was celebrate Christ. Look at Christ. Hold up Christ. See Christ. That is the ultimate way to avoid the distractions. Paul held Christ up before us so that we would marvel anew at his person. We'd marvel anew at his work. And when we gaze upon Christ, everything that Satan tries to throw along the side as a distraction, it just pales by comparison. This morning, Paul is still on the counterattack. But now he's going to do so by warning us about specific dangers that, that come when we drift off the road of righteousness. The cliff that is there is he's warning us that the false teachers in Colossae, they're trying to point to vistas over on the side that are not Christ. They're trying to get us to look to the side so that we'll drift over that cliff. They're holding up various counterfeit ideas, and, and they claim that these ideas offer us Christian freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom that righteousness gives. But the thing is, if, if the Colossian believers looked at these ideas long enough, they, they'd miss the dangerous cliff that is right there. And the thing is, Satan is still using the same approach Trying to resist the gospel's advance, he's using the same approach today they used in Colossae 2,000 years ago. He, he continues to try to distract us as believers from the road that we're to pursue, get us to look away from that, and start drifting until we're over the cliff. He wants us to, to just not notice the cliff that's right at the edge. The reality is we need to heed Paul's warning just as much as the Colossians did. We're going to look at the final eight verses of chapter 2 this morning. 
In, in these verses, there, there's three general dangers that we'll look at. Three, three vistas, if you will, that are being pointed to often in the distance to the side that, that Satan wants us to look at that will take us over this cliff of legalism. They distract us from the righteousness of Christ. They, they, they tell us to go looking for righteousness somewhere else. But they carry us away from the path that leads to the only true righteousness, transformation in Christ. So instead of falling for the views that are being offered, what we need to remember this morning, the main truth that we need to hang on to, is that Christian freedom comes through celebrating the righteousness of Christ. That alone, that's where we find freedom. Christian freedom comes from celebrating the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul held Christ up last week. That's why we're warned of these false vistas this week. We need to celebrate the righteousness of Christ. That's where we find our freedom. Let's read our verses this morning. We're picking up in verse 16 of Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes, Therefore, tying this into what you talked about last week, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Christian freedom comes through celebrating the righteousness of Christ. That's what we need to hold on to. The first idea that, that Paul warns about, the first substitute, the first vista that's being held off to the side here, trying to draw our attention, is that we need to look out for looking for righteousness through things that point to Christ. Looking for righteousness to, through things that point to Christ. Most likely, you notice, as I point out, verse 16, it, it begins with that word, therefore, that that tells us that this verse is connected to what we had last week. Christ. Christ was the, the, the thing that was being held up. Christ was being held up as that which is the most valued possession you could have. Well, Paul wants us to focus on Christ. His glory. His richness. Apparently, as we had hinted at earlier in the chapter from the, the references we saw to circumcision... Some were trying to hold up in Colossae that things from the Old Testament should be added to the gospel of Christ. Paul mentions five things here in verse 16. He mentions food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath. All things from the Old Testament Mosaic law. Things that were part of that system. And Paul doesn't spend any more time dealing with the actual false teaching. He just lists these things are being thrown in on top. 
But rather than dealing with false teaching, he makes the point in verse 17 that these things, these five things from the Old Testament system, these things all pointed to Christ. They, they were, he calls them, the shadow of which Christ was the substance. He was the body. He was the thing that cast the shadow. In other words, Christ is the reality, not these other things. These things are designed to illustrate the coming reality of Christ. Now, what we need to understand from all this is the New Testament was not bad. The Old Testament, I mean, the Old Testament system was not bad. Paul wasn't trying to say that. The Old Testament did point to Christ. That made it good. It taught that mankind needed Christ. It generated a yearning within the people of the Old Testament. We even heard, as Nino read Scripture today, how they love the law because it points to Christ. It was the useful in the function that God gave it. People kept the Old Testament laws in the expectation of the ultimate fulfillment of the law through the Messiah. The Old Testament law demonstrated that no one could keep it sufficiently, that there needed to come one, the Messiah, that could do what they could not. It created a, a yearning for the perfect law keeper. The problem was, now that Christ has come and fulfilled the law, believers are to focus on him. Through him righteousness is received, not earned by keeping of a law. A focus on Old Testament ideas, it actually served to distract from Christ rather than point to him because any focus on these other things took away from the focus on him. In other words, a focus on the law turned now into legalism, a pursuit of righteousness through personal effort. Focusing on the Old Testament law took these New Testament believers right over that cliff of legalism. Now, in the first pass, as we're sitting here this morning thinking about this, we may think, well, at least here's one danger that we don't have to worry about. This doesn't present a risk to us. We're, we're not trying to keep the Old Testament law to earn righteousness. We know we're New Testament believers. Well, in the narrowest sense, it may be true that we don't have to worry about this particular problem as it's presented here. But I'm not at all convinced that in the more general sense, as I worded it on our screen, that we don't still have the same type of danger available to us. People are still prone to look at things that point to Christ and fall into the trap of focusing on these things rather than Christ. I remember when Grace and I were in Hungary several years back, we, we visited one of the, the Roman Catholic cathedrals there, a, a great cathedral in, in, I think it was Budapest we were in at the time, I, I'm not positive. This particular cathedral was, was famous for, for one of the Roman Catholic relics they had, or maybe this is Poland. I, I might be confusing my cathedrals, I've been to several. Um, but anyway, this cathedral, what I do remember clearly, is, is it held one of the Roman Catholic relics, it, it was a severed hand, a, a hand in a gauntlet that was supposed to have been the hand of a, a saint. Basically, at this point, it was a mummified hand from several hundred years ago. Supposedly, this hand, though, came from a, a medieval saint of the church, and if a person put money in a little box, it would turn a light on so you could see the hand for just a moment or two. But many people 
were praying around that hand, praying to the saint because they thought the saint could help them get to Christ. Now, I think it's safe to say that the, the, the intention of the hand was to point to Christ. Yet it clearly distracted from Christ. People were praying to this hand instead of Christ. Now, at this point, again, a few of you might be sitting here saying, well, we're Baptists. This is not our problem. There are no relics in this church. We don't have this danger. But we still have a similar danger. There have been many cases where Baptists have fallen into focus on things that point to Christ rather than Christ. For example, I, I know that there was a recent book out by a young lady who grew up in a family greatly impacted by Gothard teaching. Well, much of Gothard teaching is built around direct application of Old Testament law to New Testament families. Or, and a lot of Baptists fell for his teaching. What did it offer? Well, it offered the appearance of a path to greater righteousness. But the focus was not Christ. Another example is that much of American Christian nationalism of today is of this nature. Christian nationalism, that, that's the, the, the name of a goal for turning America into a Christian nation, a, a nation that's governed by Christian law. The, and that's an idea that attracts a lot of Baptists, especially of our independent fundamentalist variety of Baptists. Now, I would love to see America filled with Christians. I'd love to see a nation of Christians here. And I'm confident that if we had a nation of Christians, a lot of our laws would reflect Christian mor morality. The, the problem with Christian nationalism, though, is, is that Christian nationalism has an emphasis on enacting laws rather than sharing the gospel. The goal is to have Christian laws, Christian morality in, reflected in our laws, rather than focusing on, let's share the gospel with people who need to know Christ. It's as if righteous laws will produce righteous people. Righteous laws point to Christ, but they are not Christ. They're one of these things off to the side that if we focus on too far, drift us over this cliff of legalism. As Paul is warning the Colossians, we can quickly become legalistic. The danger of the cliff here of legalism, it, it remains right on the edge of our Christian road, just as much today as it was 2,000 years ago. And the first danger is looking for righteousness through things that point to Christ. Remember, Christian freedom comes through celebrating the righteousness of Christ. We will not find Christian freedom through things that point to Christ. Danger number two, second danger that, that Paul warns us about, looking for righteousness through extra-biblical ideas. Extra-biblical ideas. In verse 18, Paul warns the believers in in Colossae, not to let anyone defraud them from their prize. That's how we have it translated in the New American Standard. Don't let anyone defraud you of your prize. The, the general idea of the wording he uses is, is don't let anyone cheat you. Don't let anyone cheat you. Don't let a shyster come along and cheat you. 
You know, we live in a world where you always have to be careful of a scam, right? There, there's email scams, there's phone scams, there's texting scams, there's scam, scam, scams. Well, they're spiritual scammers too. Paul is warning them of spiritual scammers. He goes on and lists four ways in which false teachers were trying to cheat the Colossians. One, he said they're promoting a false humility along with worship of angels. Two, they're, they're going on and on about visions that they supposedly had. Three, they're, they're evaluating their ideas by logic rather than revelation. Four, they're, they're just simply not holding tightly to Christ as the source of spiritual life. He just lists four things very quickly, again, not giving us any detail. There are a number of different things here, but, but when you look at them, they all share a common thread. These teachers are all proposing, through whichever one of these ideas you want to take, they're all proposing that somehow you can gain righteousness, you can have increased spirituality through something other than what the Bible teaches, through some extra-biblical source. They're not restricting themselves to what God has revealed through his prophets and apostles in his word. Rather, they're, they're looking for more. They're not saying discount the Bible. They're just saying let's add more. But in fact, when they do that, they spurn the revealed word of God. They, they actually act, you know, those of you that limit yourself to the word of God alone, these are the simpletons. They're the non-sophisticated. We're offering a more sophisticated religion, a religion that's built upon the word but is added to it. Now, I don't want to get bogged down here. It'd be easy to do with each of these ideas, but, but we can find all of these false extra-biblical ideas still around us today. They're swirling everywhere. For example, we have people who advocate religious experiences found through retreats that deprive themselves of normal comforts. Just recently, we had a, a well-known quarterback spend several days in a darkness retreat that was well-published. Extra-biblical ways of finding spirituality. We have all kinds of churches that look for spiritual experiences through new revelation, extra-biblical experiences. We have Christian bookstores that are filled with biographical reports, or at least that's what they claim to be, of visions, such as children who have gone to heaven and back. What garbage? It's extra-biblical. It is not Christ. Countless theological conferences are filled up with, with so-called Christian scholars presenting papers that, when you boil it down, they're rank heresy because they contradict the Bible. Yet these are the educated, the sophisticates of our day. We could spend time coming up with example after example, but in every case, the people presenting these ideas are all trying to argue that there's greater insight than what a simpletons can find holding the Bible alone. They're trying to claim that there's a path of righteousness that is understood more fully than what we understand through Scripture. There's a path of righteousness that requires more than Christ alone. I hope we can see that the danger that, that Paul is concerned about has not fallen into the dustpan of church history at all. You know, I wish we could say this idea of using extra-biblical 
ideas. It's been swept up and thrown away into history's dustbin long ago. But no, it's still all over the floor, trying to lead us to look to the side again. And when we do, we go over that cliff. It's a real and present danger to all of us. Yet before I move on, I want to note the, the brief comment that Paul gives in the second half of verse 19. He's mentioned Christ here in verse 19. They're not holding on to the head. That's Christ. We know from chapter 1, Christ is the head of the body. But having mentioned Christ, he remarks that Christ, not holding on to the head, but rather he says the body is all interconnected. Not only is Christ the head, but there's this body that's interconnected. It has joints and ligaments, as the New American Standard translates, or ligaments and sinews, as the New International Version translates it. You know, body parts are almost as hard to translate from Greek into English as things like rocks and flowers. We don't really know how they're all worded. We look at things different today. But it's clear he's talking about parts of the body connected together. The point is clear. Paul is saying the church is an interconnected entity. Christ is the head of this body of the church, but it's interconnected. There's members that make it up and they're linked together. Furthermore, he says, and it's growing. God is causing it to grow by adding more people to it. Why does Paul throw this idea here in here? He's been telling us to avoid these extra biblical ideas that people are throwing out there. And then he adds in, but don't forget the church. It seems like a strange place to make a, a brief excursus on, on the composition of the church, doesn't it? When he's dealing with false teachers, why does he remind us the church is built up of a bunch of different people? I don't think Paul is, is really trying to teach us something new about the church. If that was the case, he did a pretty poor job because he really doesn't explain the church itself. Other places he fleshes out more fully what he means by this body image. Rather, what he's doing here is throwing in the antidote for the poison of these false teachers. Their ideas are poisonous to believers. The antidote to the poison is the church. If you think about it, all of these extra-biblical ideas feed individualism. Each idea whispers that the individual can find the path to righteousness on his or her own, apart from the church. There's something over here that you can investigate and discover that doesn't require the church. Christians need the church. Christians need the church body. The church, as God assured us, is the pillar and support of the truth. Together, we spot false teaching. Any of us individually could be led astray, but together we'll spot what is false. We need the church. Together we'll learn God's plan for righteousness because together we are joined collectively to Christ. We are together in this pursuit of righteousness. We help one another. We encourage one another. We warn each other if we get too close to this edge. We protect each other from false teaching. We encourage each other to hold on to Christ. We need one another. Isolating ourselves from each other is not the path to freedom. It is distraction that will take us over this cliff of legalism. 
The idea that we can live our lives apart from the church is dangerous false teaching. It opens us up to look for righteousness through extra-biblical ideas. Remember, Christian freedom comes through celebrating the righteousness of Christ. Looking for righteousness through extra-biblical ideas, that's that second dangerous view that's off here on our side that will take us over the cliff. Paul warns us not to look there. Look to Christ. And then he gives us a third warning. As he concludes chapter 2, he gives us a third thing to be careful of. Looking for righteousness through self-discipline. That's the third warning. We run in danger when we start looking for righteousness through self-discipline. When Paul writes, if you have died with Christ, here in verse 20, he's not questioning whether or not these believers are saved. As we noted at the outset of the series, Paul, he assumes that he's writing to a group of believers. He assumes he's writing to people who understand that they are sinners before a holy God that deserve eternal damnation. He assumes already that they've come to understand that Jesus died for their sins. He's making the assumption because they're in the church that they have accepted Christ as their substitute. Ask God to take his righteousness in their place. Covered all that in chapter 1. By the time he gets here, when he writes, if you have indeed died to Christ, he is not questioning whether or not that's true. Rather, he's making their status in Christ the basis for everything that he's about to say. The the NIV notes this by by translating the the first part of the verse actually as since you have died with Christ. It's an assumption they have died with Christ. But I think Paul wrote if for a reason. He's trying to draw them in. He, He wants the readers to consider the reality of their status. If you have died with Christ, yeah, I've died with Christ. Indeed, I have. I am in Christ. That's true. So what are the implications? The implication is, if we've died with Christ, then we're not to live like those who are not in Christ. In other words, if we've died with Christ, we're to live like those who are in Christ. We should not live like the world around us. We're dead to the elementary principles of the world. We encountered that phrase last week. That was one of those phrases that I just summed up. Paul says, he gave a number of phrases like that, and all he's talking about is false worldviews, ways of looking at the world that are not true. Dying with Christ means that we are to consider ourselves dead to these false worldviews. Well, one thing that false worldviews consistently do is hand out a list of do's and don'ts. If you're going to believe the worldview, here's things you do and here's things you don't. One of our false worldviews today, as we mentioned last week, is, is the, and we've been looking at all winter through our spiritual family nights, is the idea of wokeness. Well, wokeness has a list of do's and don'ts. You do believe these things, you don't believe these things. Now, most of those do's and don'ts are flipped from what the Bible says, but there's a list. There's a list of do's and don'ts. Well, some of the most dangerous, at least as far as Christians are concerned, for us, some of the most dangerous are false worldviews that include a large number of biblical ideas in the list of do's and don'ts, and they put them in the right place. 
The, the danger is that people succumb to the false worldview because by succumbing to that false view, they look like really good Christians. I, I remember Grace and I had some Mormon friends when we were first married. We, I worked with a, a young man who had been recently married himself, a Mormon man, and it was easy for us to be friends with this couple. They, they lived their lives like us. They were conservative in their entertainment. They were inoffensive in their speech. They, they were kind in their behavior. In, in many ways, they were just like us. They were quite self-disciplined. And they were completely lost because they did not know Christ as Savior. For the Colossians, apparently one of the dangers that the church was facing were people somewhat like the Mormons, very similar. Nice people who were giving a list of do's and don'ts that, that seemed to line right up with Christianity. The problem was they were advocating doing these things apart from Christ. Maybe they were even advocating doing these things to earn favor with God, to, to be more like Christ, but apart from Christ. They had this list, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these things, this, this, and this. And the Christians would say, those are right. You shouldn't handle that, you shouldn't taste that, you shouldn't touch that. Uh, it was a list of prohibitions, but they were detached from faith in Christ. They were in addition to faith in Christ or in place of faith in Christ. The problem was not the items on the list. The problem was the motivation that drove the keeping of the list. You could do this apart from Christ. Maybe an example will help us understand. Let me give you an example. Here's a do not. Do not look at pornography. I would hope that all of us would agree that's a good prohibition for a Christian. A prohibition that Christians should follow, right? Do not look at pornography. Do you realize that a Muslim would have that on his list as well? All expects a Muslim not to look at pornography. A Mormon would certainly have that on his list. So would a Jehovah Witness. Same with a Hindu. But by God's grace, as far as I know, all the, the, the major religions would advocate, do not look at pornography. Yet the motivation underlying what is a good prohibition on the list of these other religions is very different than the motivation for true Christianity. For the other religions is to earn favor with their version of a god. For true Christianity is not to earn favor, it's to reflect our joy in Christ. This is the problem that Paul's warning about here. In these final verses, attempting to exercise self-discipline to become righteous. We might say attempting to achieve self-discipline through our own human efforts. That might be another way of stating it. Well, what are the results from doing this? Look at the final phrase of verse 23. What are the results? Paul says it has no value against fleshly indulgence. Doing all these things externally have no value, he says, against fleshly indulgence. The reason is the seed of our sin is internal. Our sinful nature lies within. Focusing on external actions, even good external actions, self-discipline, 
is, as, as one commentator said, just another form of pandering to the flesh, creating her own internal pride. It is the ditch of legalism. Legalism doesn't have to be doing a bunch of wrong things. It can be doing the right things for the wrong reason. We can gaze so hard at these things that they take us right over this cliff of legalism. Now, because of the mission trip that's coming up to Germany, Pastor Aaron already mentioned it, I and several others will be leaving Saturday, and, and I expect by my schedule it will be a month before we actually get back to the next chapter. So for that reason, I want to mention that Paul immediately moves in to a section that indicates we are to exercise self-discipline. He immediately deals with the ditch on the other side of no rules because he's just said doing good things can be dangerous. He also wants to make sure that not doing good things is dangerous too. As Christians, we are to stay on this road to righteousness. So Paul immediately moves into a section that indicates we are certainly to exercise self-discipline in a lot of areas. We are to avoid sinful behaviors as part of our Christian life. Avoiding the ditch of legalism doesn't mean that we yank the steering wheel so hard that we go right off the cliff on the other side. That's just as deadly. Rather, we're to practice biblical self-discipline. The difference is that we practice these things that we are to do or not do in Christ. We practice them through his victory, celebrating what he has done, having joy in Christ, focusing on him so much that these things no longer tempt us. We don't care about them because we have Christ, celebrating Christ. So it's not through our efforts, it's through Christ. After all, that is our main lesson day. Celebrating freedom comes, or Christian freedom comes through celebrating the righteousness of Christ. And looking for, for righteousness through self-discipline, that is not the answer. That's why Paul gives us our third warning this morning. We are on this narrow road, this, this narrow road of Christian life. It's the road that, that takes us to Christ-likeness, takes us to righteousness, it's a lot like that narrow mountaintop road that I keep describing where there's a deep cliff on either side. And those cliffs are deadly. On the one side we have, Benisa over here, antinomianism. The, the idea that licentiousness, we can do whatever we want because we're forgiven in Christ. That's a deadly error. On the other side is legalism. The, the pursuit of righteousness through personal effort. That's the dangerous side Paul's been focusing on this morning. The dangerous side of the road that he's warned us about. He's warned us Christian freedom comes through celebrating the righteousness of Christ, not through looking at anything that we can do on our own. Specifically, he's warned us about three things that, that we can be tempted to look at, tempted to try and uh, achieve on our own that will take us right over this cliff. One, we can go looking for righteousness through things that point to Christ, but are not Christ. Two, we can go looking for righteousness through extra-biblical ideas, but they're not Christ. Three, we can go looking for righteousness through self-discipline, trying to become like Christ on our own rather than celebrating Christ. 
no matter how good any of these things look as we glance over and see them beside us, all of them cause us to drift toward this cliff of legalism that will destroy. Christian freedom comes through celebrating the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you again for your word, word that warns us as well as encourages us. Father, this morning we've looked at some warnings, warnings of trying to pursue righteousness through our own efforts. Father, may we not fall for these false ideas, but rather may we celebrate what we have received in Christ alone. May we gaze upon him, may we focus on him, may we see him as that great treasure that was held before us last week. And may we avoid the pitfall of legalism. Father, I thank you, and I pray that you would enable each of us to glory in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.